Australian Open podcast, although the first after the tournament is finished. I realize some of you are probably a little bit groggy, either from staying up until the match began or waking up at some point during a match that you thought you'd get to see more of and, and didn't get the chance. But this is Mark, and, I, and I'm reporting here from Miami, and I'm with my cousins Peter and Philip, and they're going to check in, and uh, then we're going to talk all things Australian Open and, and look ahead. Yeah, so this is Peter. I'm in Boston. Um, I, uh, I woke up at 5 a.m. this morning just to catch the, the match. I, felt, I figured if it, was a, if it was a good match, that would be towards the beginning, and if it was a bad match, it would be towards the end, and I'd catch a little bit either way. Um, and I guess later this, this, this morning, I actually played some tennis, and... Um, I I swear I felt like Novak Djokovic felt because the wind was at my back and the net was a little low. So I could just tap a serve and it would feel like a rocket off my strings. And so the question I'd like to present to you guys was, when was the last time you felt like Novak Djokovic must have felt on court today? Uh, for me, um, it was probably in fourth grade. Uh, we had field day in our school, which was uh, the, the school, the lower school and middle, and middle school would be split up into the white team and the blue team, and uh, I won basically everything um, and just couldn't be stopped, and yeah, that was probably when I peaked. Um, what about you, Mark? So, are you saying that now we have to change the... the the lingo from I felt the mojo to, to I felt the Novak. <laughs> I mean, that would be appropriate. Just he he was on he was a force today. My God. Yeah. So I was actually at, there's there's two incidents that come to mind. One actually was Friday. I uh, I teach high school and I started the table tennis club and. I don't know, I could just tell, you know, we do this kind of king of the court stuff. And on Friday, I could tell after my first, uh, my first whiplashing of one of my students that I wasn't going to lose. And so every time somebody stepped to the other side of the table, I would say, you might want to grab a tissue because I, you know, I'm just feeling it today. And, and maybe there's a little self-actualization to that, but it was true. I, I held form. I, di I didn't give up my spot. Uh, for 10 games, and there was one other time, it was, uh, and you guys know that sort of D.C. squash league stuff, so I was like, we're doing like summer B-league, and I was playing against a guy on the GW old courts, the Smith Center courts, which are really narrow, and I won the first game, not, anyway, I just, it was just one of those days I could not miss, Yeah. and I think I went 9-1, 9-2, 9-1, and I felt it, and there was nothing my opponent could do, he could construct the best point of his life, and he still wasn't going to win, so I just... I was feeling the choke on that day. Yeah, I, I've I've had coaches say that you should never make an excuse that it's like not a good day, because only like five times in your life are you gonna feel just amazing before you get <laughs> on the court, and only only like five times in your life are you gonna have just that perfect day where everything yeah, comes only together. Only like five times in a row in your life are you gonna have the joke up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly the JoJo, um, and. Uh, but yeah, it's like you sort of remember you, you can remember them when when they happen. 
Um, and I don't even know if Djokovic, I don't even know if Djokovic felt like this was an out-of-body experience because I, I've seen him play this way before. Like, Luca Pui got, like, four games <laughs> in the semifinals. Yeah, I, I thought Pui was like, playing, like, crap, and then Rafa got him, too. So, so that sort of exonerated Pui. Like, he literally just KO'd Nishikori in the, in the quarterfinals. Yeah. And remember um, how in the U.S. Open final he made, um, he made uh, Del Potro's forehand look just like it had nothing on it? Yeah, he's had a few of those, and I, I, I wonder when they start to feel it. Is it like, okay, if I win the first three games or four games, or I go up 4-1, that I, I just know I'm in that mode and there's nothing that can take me out of it uh, other than an injury? Or they realize it at the end. They're like, holy cow, I just haven't dropped. You know, I haven't dropped one ounce of uh, cyborgism, or, 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 or I haven't dropped one ounce of my Joko this entire time. But he's had a lot of those. I guess starting at Wimbledon with uh, uh, Kachanov, like in the round of 16, and you kind of, I guess when he's in the zone right now, there's, there's, everybody's playing for a second. Yeah, it's like, I, what I think it is, is he just fully reads his opponent's game, and there's literally nothing they can do. I think, like, what you said you felt against the guy who you crushed and squashed, it's like you just felt like there was nothing the other guy could do. Um, and I think when you have that against Nadal, who's the second best player in the world right now, um, you're just, like, on another level than every other player. And I feel really good about myself um, because I called a Novak single-season Grand Slam, and it's looking very possible right now. And uh, I also got third place out of 199 in the Tennis Bracket Challenge. Uh, bracket challenge, And so, Joko's mojo is my mojo. Yeah, as above, you know, as below or something. Probably the Buddhists would, would agree with that. That's a nice, nice symbiosis of the two. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know how long it takes. When you guys are, are cheering for somebody and... And I know, you know, it's happened, I guess, probably in college when you were cheering against Trinity in a match or, or cheering against somebody that you didn't want to have to play in the next round. You know, at what point do, you, do, we, do we ever transfer from, like, you know, frustration that the person we want to lose just isn't giving up an inch to awe? Is there a point where you can admire it for what it is? Or, or only in the rearview mirror do you say, wow, that was just like, that was such a virtuoso performance, even though the person I was hoping to win didn't, you know, I'm, I, I saw something that was incredible. Yeah, I, I sort of felt that way today. Like, I didn't want Djokovic uh, to win, but when he, when he, when I just saw the way he was playing, I was just like, okay, I'm seeing something special right now. Yeah. And do, you um, think, do you think Rafa saw himself? Like, that's how it is playing against me on clay. Like, he saw a little bit of himself, and maybe there was a moderate level of appreciation there, too, knowing that, like, rarely does he actually get to see himself in that sense. Yeah, exactly. It was probably a... It must have been a bit of, like, a uh, giving, giving him feeling some of his own medicine, kind of. Yeah, yeah. But, uh... So let's talk. Let's, let's talk about Peter. You know, what do you think? What... Which of your picks, actually, that, that allowed you to get a third place 
materialized and, and some, maybe aside from Novak's dominance, what were some other risky picks you made that helped you, you know, get that third place? And, and looking back, you you realized you had the Joko when you were you were making your predictions. So um, I guess just one one last thing on the final, and then I'm gonna uh, then I'll then I'll gladly transition to um, explaining to you all how how awesome I am. Um, the so one of the things that was annoying about the uh, the broadcast in the final was McEnroe was just harping on how bad Nadal was playing. And it looked like Nadal just, like, he wasn't playing his best. He, he was having a tough time reading Djokovic. But it was really more that Djokovic was playing out of his mind. There was one point in the third set um, where he had 28 winners and four unforced errors. And he was hitting lines. And it's just like, at, at a certain point, what can you really do when a guy is playing that well? Um but my, Isn't a good match ratio just two to one? Like if you're forty winners to twenty unforced errors, you've had had a great day at the office. I would assume with with the top pros that if you're playing against another top pro, yeah, you're at a two to one ratio. You're that's a that's an that's an amazing day, and this was a seven to one ratio. <laughs> and and if you break even, you still have a chance of winning, right? Like, oh yeah. Um, but Did Djokovic have a hundred unforced errors against Simone a couple <laughs> of years ago, and he won. I know that oh uh, Shapovalov had seventy-six unforced errors in a match at the U.S. Open and won that match. Yeah, there you go. Um, but my best call in my bracket was um, I had I had Shapovalov or not Shapovalov. I had uh, Sitsipas getting to the semifinals. Um, so and very few other people had that. And how about on the top half of the draw? Did you, did you call the Zverev upset? Did you call Rayanich making it further? Or, or it was like a lot of people kind of, you know, making the third and fourth round that, that you predicted would make the third and fourth round, in fact, did? No, so the Zverev section was one where I got a lot of them wrong. I had Chorch going to the semis. I had Pui losing to somebody, Early. probably Chorch. And, <laughs> and uh, I did have Zverev losing to Chorch. But I think that was just an unpredictable draw. Like, that was a very unpredictable bracket. So just very few people got that one right. So the term, the term that I was thinking, and I, and I don't mean to sound nerdy here, was like, there was like a level of homeostasis in the tournament where players that we kind of had written off but it ha have had a pretty impressive record uh, in the past, you know, have been part of the conversation, kind of worked their way back in. Uh, Rayonich being one. So are there others who you feel like uh, maybe we thought that they were, you know, over and done with and, and, and they're going to be relevant this year? Other players like that who, who really stepped it up and, you know, you'll keep them on their radar going forward. I guess maybe Phil or Peter. Any other players in that? And since the past is one, I guess most wouldn't have thought that he would have made the semis. But other players who kind of overachieved that, that you feel like that could continue? Uh, Luca Pui for sure. Um, until the semifinals, he was just playing extremely well. Uh, and Burditch. I thought Burditch was done. He made the quarters. No, quarters are round of 16. Right. Round of 16. Uh, isn't he? Yeah, but he gave Rafa a fight. He lost to Rafa in the round of 16, but, but he made it there. And also our boy, uh, Ban Utista. <laughs> 
Yeah, what does it say for Spain? I mean, even Verdasco barely lost, so is Spain, you know, just as far as like the the four man relay, is, is Spain at least uh, ahead in that race right now, or does Djokovic just run the whole relay by himself? Very <laughs> Serbian. Uh, Batista Agut actually beat Djokovic in an early season tournament. So I do think Spain's got some like special sauce in the water. Be surprised? Do you think? Uh, do you think the U.S. tennis is is got something to be bullish about? It seems like our young our younger players are are uh, you know, making a statement at least. Some some of them are getting in the second week. Or do you think that was flukish? Do you think Tiafoe and Fritz can can uh, can continue the the upswing? Yeah, I think Tiafoe Tiafo beat Dimitrov and Anderson, um, and there were. There were some, like, points. He just hits the shit out of the ball. And, like, there are times when he's got his teeth in a rally and he's just, like, hitting the ball harder than his opponent. And, yeah, I think that was uh, encouraging to see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Tiafo. it's hard to know how for real he is. He was asked in an interview after the Rafa match saying, is, is he still on the rise or is he already here? And he's like... Nah, I'm still on the rise for sure. Um, I gotta like be a little. I got gotta get results like this more consistently for me to be here, like already arrived. Um, exactly. And I, I agree because like his big matches were all five set victories. It's not like it's like to a certain extent they could have gone either way. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, he just had he had a great tournament, but uh, I'm not gonna just get too overconfident about him. Um, what I will say, oh yeah, and also Fritz. Did Fritz win Newport Beach today? Um, hey, oh, I wasn't paying attention to that. So they had another tournament. But he made the third round, which, I, you know, he, he, he made it where a seed was supposed to go. So that, I think anybody who makes the third round of a major has the goods, right? Yeah. I mean, there may be an occasional Wimbledon where you just have a serve, but I would say to make the Aussie third round, you have to have a decent variety of, of, of good shot making. And certainly in the heat, you have to be in, in decent shape as well. So maybe he's maybe he's turned a corner and, you know, he'll fill in where people like Sock and Johnson and which other Harrison, they just haven't been able to maintain a steady play. Oh, yeah. This is a much better crop than the one before it. I, I will I will sort of plant my flag on that. Although Sock yeah. was good until he just collapsed. <laughs> There's also yeah. uh, what's his name? Opelka had a good result. He beat Isner in one-on-one -on -one basketball or one-on-one -on -one tennis. <laughs> uh, it was sort of the tennis equivalent of a slam dunk contest. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, so back, yeah. back to the final, though. I, just, should Rafa walk away from this? I mean, I, uh, the only part I heard was the interview afterwards when you realized that he hadn't actually played a tournament since the U.S. Open. Yeah, the draw opened up for him a little bit, but it seemed like he was playing so well it wouldn't have mattered who he played. Do you think he walks away from this feeling you know, better, the same, or, or a little bit more um, you know, kind of fearful of, of what, lays ahead, what lies ahead? Definitely the last one, just because I think what became clear in this tournament is that uh, 
there's everybody else, and then Rafa's on the next level, and then Djokovic is on the next level after that. So, like, Rafa knows he can sort of just pwn anybody uh, in the sport, except there's one person who he's not even close to. So, if you... One my th- one of my theories about Rafa's sort of 2014-2015 slump is that he just got so he he was just so spent and emotionally drained from losing to Djokovic so many times in like big matches that he just like couldn't get up for it anymore. And there is a there is a real world in which Rafa makes four finals this. Four Grand Slam finals this year and loses all four. But he doesn't seem to be. Bo- is he bothered by that? He doesn't, never outwardly seems that he's bothered. He always seems so positive, as if you know, I gave him my best. It wasn't enough, and I'm looking ahead. You think that's a front? You think that that's a little bit of hedging, or you think that that he genuinely, maybe, even though emotionally he he puts everything into winning, he he is more accepting of his. Tennis mortality. I don't know if I'm posing the question the right way. He never seems to be visibly down, even even in a match where he gets it taken to him. He always seems to be put to have short memories. He clearly cares a lot, though. Like you can just see it in his tennis, and the the changes he's made to his game were clearly um, to give himself a better shot at beating Djokovic. Like improve the serve, improve the like step up and improve the first shot in the point. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think like one of the things this showed is that there is a formula to beating joke to beating Rafa if you can take the ball very, very early. And that's what Djokovic was doing. He was just taking the ball so early. And that's what Federer did two year uh, like in twenty seventeen. Um and uh Rafa just is probably gonna I don't know. He's he's old enough and been around the block enough times where it's probably not like he's devastated, but he pro- he has to go back to the drawing board and really try and figure out how on earth am I going to beat this guy? Yeah, I mean, the only, there was only two other thoughts I had. One is that maybe the two days off hurt him more than, than maybe that had no bearing at all. But he obviously came out of the semis in the zone. You know, maybe if he'd gone back out the next night or two nights out after, you know, maybe it got him a little bit out of rhythm. I don't know if 72 hours versus 48 hours makes a difference when you're used to playing a match at least every 48 hours. And then secondly, the fact that he wasn't pushed until the final where Djokovic at least had that tough match with Medvedev. Now, maybe that that's just there's correlation without causation there. I don't know. Yeah, interesting points. I, I, I think you might be right where... He may have, the 72 hours may have actually been a disadvantage because it, it uh, caused him to lose some of his, some of his momentum. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he hadn't played a competitive match in four months. And so um, he looked a little sort of confused out there. So Yeah, or maybe, just when he fell behind, he didn't really have something to summon his- Okay, you know, I fell behind one set in the second round or, or the third round. You know, it's just a matter of time getting back in. He kind of found himself in, in a place he hadn't been in for a while. Yeah, so I, think, I, I, I think that's a really good point. So, but, Phil, uh, or, or do you think that, that um, 
think this change changes the way that that both of them or the other players kind of pace themselves for the rest of the year? Does it make the young guys even hungrier, knowing that Djokovic um, just set the bar even higher than they thought the bar was set at? Do, do any of those guys have the goods to, to to reach that level, or does Djokovic have to come down from from his pink cloud? Yeah, I mean. I'm not sure how much this changes because presumably all of these guys are working as hard as they can anyway. And it's just Djokovic has the best combination of just like talent and like uh, base around him and all of that. And so it's just like, I think all of these guys are going to continue trying as hard as they can. Um, but I don't know. I sort of, I'm, I remember in 2014 or 2015 when Joker looked unbeatable and just Stan came out of nowhere and just just kicked his ass at the French Open. Um, and so that's actually what it might take for somebody to beat Joker is just somebody to raise their game. And actually, the, the one match where Joker uh, seemed to really be in a fight was against Medvedev. Um, and I think, like, the type of opponent Joker um, has trouble with is, like, Stan at his best and Medvedev, the guys who hit the ball flat and yeah. through the court and, like, can run. Like, he, he doesn't have much issue with, like, people who hit loopy balls because his... Uh, High ground strokes are so good, but uh, if you can hit overpowering and flat consistently, that's what Joker doesn't like. Yeah, and I, I guess, uh, so two points, uh, one to sort of Mark's question and then one to what Philip just said about Djokovic. Um, I think that what we're, what we're in for is another cycle like the one we just had where... Um, some of the young guys and some 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 of the sort of established but not top three guys are going to have some really impressive results, and we're going to be lulled into thinking, oh, maybe he has a shot. Like maybe Dominic <laughs> Team has a shot at Roland Garros this year, and then it's gonna then then the top th the big three are just going to lay the hammer in the Grand Slams when it counts. But I think this could have been a wake up call. Um, to some of the young guys uh, really realizing that it's like, all oh, right, like even if we have even if we compete against these guys in a masters 1000, the Grand Slam is a totally different level and we and there's just like another sort of echelon of peaking for that. Um, so maybe it was a learning experience in that regard. And then to Philip's point about Medvedev, I actually think that um, the other than Djokovic, this the, the this tournament was most encouraging for Medvedev because he legitimately got a set off Djokovic, and uh, to a, a slightly lesser extent Shapovalov, because Shapovalov got a set off Djokovic also, and like they had some twenty shot rallies where um, just Shapovalov was just legitimately outplaying him. Um, the reason I think Medvedev was more impressive is I think that uh, Djokovic was playing at a higher level against Medvedev. Yeah, Medvedev actually could have won that match if he didn't win, run out of gas totally. Like, Medvedev, uh, there were points where I was like, whoa, uh, this guy is like, 
on Joker's level right now. So this will sound a little geeky, but what, what I'm taking from your comments is that if your last name ends in G, you have a chance <laughs> against Djokovic because Zverev beat him in London, Kachanov beat him in Percy, and then these guys. So the only chance you have is if your last name ends in V. Yeah, pretty much. Basically, if you're you have like right. Eastern European origins. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of like flaws with that logic, and I'm I can't really find it. That's like that's pretty airtight, Mark. Um, what do you think about that whole 10, ten points? Maybe you guys discussed it in your last podcast. Do you like the 10-point uh, fifth set tiebreaker? Do you think that should be uh, something the other... Paris, I can't... I, I, you know, the idea of a clay court match going to 12-10 or 14-12 sounds pretty exciting. A lot more exciting than, than a Wimbledon match. Did you like the 10-point uh, fifth set tiebreaker rule? I, I did. Um... Because I, I like that it's 10 instead of 7, because it, it means that a mini break doesn't just like totally uh, shift the balance of power. Um, and uh, I really wish the Nadal-Mueller match had had that 10-point <laughs> tiebreak. Because it, uh, it, makes it, it makes it so that the guy with the untouchable serve has a lower chance of getting to the next round. Um, but I think the uh, the most epic one was the the uh, Carreño Busta Nishikori tiebreaker. Yeah. yeah you, do you think Carreño Busta has put himself? That's the only way that other people that you know some of the uh, more pedestrian tennis fans will now remember his name. So as it turns out, that was a really smart your decision to to get to sort of. Uh, <laughs> Sandbag the last four points, so at least he, you know. Otherwise, who the hell's going to talk about him in Spain? He's like the fourth or fifth ranked Spaniard, so now he's got, you know, he, now he's get gets his name in the news. Yeah, I have a, a conspiracy theory that Cranio uh, Busta uh, he wasn't pissed off about a call; he was pissed off because he had uh, slept with the referee the night before, or like maybe <laughs> at a different tournament, and the referee never called him back. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of who would sponsor him because of that uh, outburst. Um, he might get Red a Red Bull sponsorship. So, WWF, Red Bull. So, <laughs> so of, of the top Spanish tennis players, there are three, at least, with, like, two-part names. There's Carreño Busta, Batista Agu, and Ramos Vinolas. And... Maybe it's becoming like the fad in Spain, but I've always wondered what do, how do how does it work if someone with a hyphenated name marries someone else with a hyphenated name, and they, they their kid needs a hyphenated name, so like imagine yeah. if Batista Agut's child married uh, Ramos Vinolas's child, and it was um, I don't know Juan Ramos Vinolas Batista Agut. Well, particularly if it's a gay marriage, yeah. <laughs> you're, really, you're really not supposed to chop off one of the names. Yeah. And there's a high probability of that, actually. So that that, that question may be prophetic. Uh, I would think it's heavy. I just think, like, 
you know, advantage, like a, when you have add in and they have to say that extra syllable, you might be ready to serve and they're still saying, you know, advantage. <laughs> and I think that that can either cause, that can either be a, a benefit or, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I Del Potro, I po Potro felt so free last year when they dropped the Dell. <laughs> exactly. No doubt about Put a lot of and, and, let, and let Dell really um, overburdened Sock last year. Jack Dell Sock, among, among others. So what? Where are we, where are we looking here? Do, do you think that kind of the rest of the hardcore season is almost anticlimactic? Uh, do you have to put any stock in it? Are people just trying to sort of get their rankings or maintain their ranking until the top fifteen? Is there anybody who should be um, all? Either concerned or or pretty excited. I think Songa played some good tennis. You know, I think he had one or two close sets with with Joker. At least he got through the first round. And uh, Bird has played well. Anybody else who should be who should be feeling like, hey, I got I got a second life, or holy cow, my my New Year's resolutions aren't aren't materializing the way I thought they would. Um, uh, I think Dimitrov should be disappointed that he lost to uh, to Alpha. I also think Federer uh, yeah. is is in a tough spot because he's number six in the world right now, and he has a lot of points to defend at Indian Wells. Um, I think Indian Wells and Miami. Yeah, I mean, he'll, he'll get some back on the clay because he'll probably play at least two of them before the French. Yeah, and uh, and so yeah, maybe he plays more tournaments this year, but uh, I don't know. He. Um, Especially because Djokovic is in the zone he's in, like, like, I, uh, I would be, I would be concerned if I was Roger Federer. The man is yeah, thirty-seven get... years old, like thirty-seven and a half. Yeah, he, he's kind of. Uh, I mean, I, I wonder if there are expectations. I mean, if he goes into it with. That's an interesting because technically all expectations should be out the window. At his age, he's defied the odds. He uh, when he loses, he doesn't lose by yeah. He'll get beat in the next round or the round after that. So it becomes you know I think it's he's not losing to the champion necessarily. Anderson didn't win Wimbledon. The Australian guy didn't win the U.S. Um, since the past didn't win Australia. And I wonder, where, where do you guys see see Zverev in this? Is this okay? Well, at least I made the round of 16. I didn't lose in the first or second round. So even though it wasn't what, what I thought, at least it's an improvement. Or were the, ex, were the expectations right, rightfully that he should have been in the semis or finals? Um, I don't know. I think uh, he ran into a really good player on a really good day. Um, but he's also lost a step. I, I think he I think he should be like I think he's one of those who's gonna go into sort of uh introspection because he got slayed. Um like he got crushed by, by Rayanich. And yeah, Rayanich was playing well, but he also lost in the next round to a guy who got crushed by Djokovic. Like <laughs> like Djokovic would not have Djokovic would have crushed Rayanich on that day and any other day. And it's just like, if Zverev considers himself a Grand Slam contender, 
um, he's got to like, he's got to like show it. Yeah, he has a little bit of time to turn the corner, but I'm looking at players like Team and 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 that crew and saying, you know, if they can't turn the corner now, when are they going to have their chance? Like literally, they would have to depend, I guess, on on the top guys not playing in the draw. So. And Djokovic could legitimately have five years left. Yeah, that's good, right? Right? When you hit your peak, you usually have another four or five years. So, I mean, Federer won majors seven, eight, nine years after his peak. Yeah. It's very probably Rafa, too. I mean, if Rafa's peak was in 2009, 2010, you know, he's still winning majors seven, eight, nine years after his peak. Yeah. Um... Would you, if you were Rafa, would you would you hit the clay sooner? Would you would you play those South American clay tournaments, or would you step back for a little bit and, and try to rev up for Indian Wells in Miami? Uh, I wouldn't overdo it. I think Rafa, the number one thing with Rafa is to not get injured. Yeah, I would. I would uh, be very happy with twelve hundred points, and use that as license not to overdo it. And just go straight, go do his like sort of Roland Garros formula. Yeah, agreed. Um, I I would want him to. I hope he skips Indian Wells and plays Miami, just because he's never won Miami. Yeah, yeah. Joker fight them. Yeah, and that's another tournament that Djokovic owns, so that's going to be hard. Yeah. Uh, what is it about Australia that that allows Djokovic to thrive? Do you think he just warms up as a player more? Or what, is there something in the what's in the water there? Is it it's just perfect timing for him, or, or is it just you know his talent? Um, his talent hits a crescendo in the season sooner than others. Maybe it's his, it's pro, maybe it's the proximity to China, because <laughs> nobody owns the China. Uh, like part of the season more than Djokovic does. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, and I also think uh, it's sort of like chance as well. Like, uh, yeah, how many U.S. Open titles does he have? Like three or four? That sounds right. And, like, yeah, it's just like, okay, he won seven Australian Opens, but it could just as well be, like, six Australian Opens and five U.S. Opens. Like, it's just yeah, the way the draw happens sometimes. Yeah. I also think the Aussie is the one where the players are at their healthiest um, because they they have that break before. And so it actually might be the one of like it might be the it might be the best metric for who's actually the best hardcourt player, um, and maybe it's just there's less wear and tear from the season, so Djokovic can doesn't have there are like yeah there's yeah less wear and tear from the season, so so um, he can just really thrive. Makes makes a lot of sense. Uh... Anything else? Uh, totally quick question. What, uh, as far as women's tennis, what would you say you've done more of in the in the last two weeks? Have you done more aggregate dental flossing or watching of women's tennis? <laughs> during, during the fortnight. 
for me, it's, I think, exactly the same um, amount of minutes. And I'll just leave it at that. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to expose how little I floss. Um, like, I don't think I flossed. So, and I did watch some of Osaka. Osaka just hits the ball as hard as she can on every single. She's the next big thing, and it's like, it's already here. She's what joke. She's what Zverev wishes he was. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, because yeah, she's like the next thing. Are we supposed to sort of make a post-New Year's resolution to floss more? Because I don't <laughs> want to be, I'm, I'm be asking that question and say that I've watched more women's tennis than flossing. <laughs> so I'm going to hold it to each other that we'll, we'll floss you know, between uh, this podcast and the next. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I will floss. Well, what, what is the female tennis viewing equivalent of a guilty pleasure? Like, I don't see it as a guilty pleasure to watch Serena. And I don't see, like, if you were watching whom, it would be considered a guilty pleasure. Uh, Kornikova, like, old video of Kornikova. <laughs> 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 Maybe, like, Martina Hingis and Kornikova. <laughs> I'm not sure where the guilt should come in there, but yeah. Guilty if you don't. It's <laughs> sort of a guilty pleasure because, like, it's just more efficient to use other forms of stimulation. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking, like, like if you're watching Kavinova against, uh, I don't know, not Stevens. Like, if somebody watched Kavinova in the semifinals, that's the equivalent of a guilty pleasure. Like, if you can't find anything else on TV to watch, but to watch the women's semi that doesn't involve Williams or Osaka, then you then should feel guilty. Yeah. Um, so what, what's it like in Paris right now? Are, are, are they waiting to, to pop the champagne? Have they already popped it? Yeah, basically, crazy. the happiest man in the world right now is Emmanuel Macron because... Uh, so for the last, like, I don't know how many Saturdays, uh, the streets have been flooded with gilets jaunes, uh, like, protesters. But now that Djokovic won, the streets have flooded again. And, like, the running out the, uh, the gilets jaunes, it's just, it's just like an incredible show of nationalism right now. There's flooding everywhere. France has so much to be proud about in sports this year. Like, they won the World Cup, and Djokovic has won the last three tennis majors. Imagine how how bad the Gilet Jeune would be without that. <laughs> yeah. I don't think my phone. I mean, maybe felt that. Yeah, so also, what are the odds that Djokovic holds all four Grand Slam trophies at the same time? Like, is it greater than 50-50 now? That he wins Roland Garros? Yeah, yeah, I think they're at about 65. Well, I, I, Wimbledon may be the wild card. There may be just some big server. You know, Murray, the Murray factor, the Fed factor. We don't know how many more he has. I think right now Wimbledon may be the hardest of the bunch for him to win this year as well as he's played. But he has to and only win the French to, uh, win, to hold all four at the same time. 
All he has to do is win the French. It's a good way to look at it. I mean, right now we have to defer to Peter's judgment because he's, uh, you know, he's VIP. He's uh, where does this rank, Peter, as far as some of your New Year's accomplishments, things that you've, you've, you've accomplished in, in 2019? Where, where does this rank? Oh, man. Um... I'm trying to think of other things I've accomplished in 2019. You haven't flossed very much, though. Yeah. I didn't, it's off the book. I didn't floss. Um, I, uh, I've gotten a new moisturizer routine. Uh, it's probably number one. <laughs> is, it, is it similar to uh, Debbie Goffin's moisturizer routine? Oh. Uh, doesn't take as long. <laughs> It's, it's, um, <laughs> uh, I don't want to think about David Guffin's moisturizer routine. <laughs> I knew any of us. Well, that, that might be, that might be one of Phil's guilty pleasures. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, again, we just want to congratulate Phil of, of doing our second on the spot recording, uh, during our uh, array of podcasts over the last year. I think we at least, you know, we hit the U.S. Open, and all three of us hit the U.S. Open at the same time. But, but Phil, Phil deserves kudos for, for being on site for three of the four. And I think maybe what that's telling us is we got to find a way to hit Wimbledon this year. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah I think I'm going to be going for the uh, single-season Grand Slam this year. Yeah. Well, as long as it's four in a row, it doesn't even have to be in the same. In the same well, I guess it could be in the same year for Paris and... And, and New York are doable. But even if you just get four in a row, that, that'll that work for us. <laughs> yeah, you're letting, you're letting me off easy, man. Well, it's just that, you know, you're just going to, now that Peter's really brought us into the public eye, we're not going to get as much privacy there. So, you may get ratted out for, for seat chasing. Yeah, we uh, have so much credibility now. Yeah, and way to use the Britishism privacy. By the way, Phil, would you consider your uh, level of seat chasing in Australia a, for, a form of being in the in, of having the joko? Oh, I had I had enormous joko um, at my seat chasing. It's just that uh, what's it? Um, Australians are just terrified of uh, minor infractions such as jaywalking. Um, and it's because they have all at some point gotten ticketed for jaywalking and had to pay $75 on the spot. Um, and I think that sort of bleeds over to other things like uh, sitting in a seat that's not assigned to you. So I, I, every, the, the back rows were full, and my ticket was for a back row, but I was literally the only one chasing seats, so, so it was uh, effective. Yeah, there, there might be a, a podcast you should do um, on their behalf because I feel like you've wasted wasted your ticket value unless you find a way to upgrade it you know, during the event. I, I refuse. And maybe that'll be a good lead-in for our next uh, podcast, which is what's the equivalent to you of not sea chasing at a tennis event? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the equivalent of not sea chasing at a tennis event. Is that like going to a bar and not? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. We, can sit on, we can sit on that thought just because it, it has a lot of value. And some of our, some of our <laughs> listeners may be tired from 
from their yeah, jag of sleep today. I think I think the equivalent of uh, Nazi person is saying, "Nah, she was too drunk." <laughs> oh God. Uh, we can kind of leave it at that because <laughs> now we're all we're all replaying the tape in our heads. <laughs> we're guilty of such. So. <laughs> we'll just we'll just we'll just chalk that up to that never happened to us. Um, yeah, you could, not, not that it ever happened in my experience. I'm just saying from movies. Well, to our fans, you know, Peter, uh, if you if you need. Uh, Making a bet on tennis, uh, I guess Peter's the one to speak to. If, if you want to know how to move from the outhouse to the penthouse, I guess Philip's the one to speak to. And if you want to make a lot of money in two weeks, I guess Novak Djokovic is the guy to speak to. If you want to make a lifetime supply of money in two weeks, then uh, and he's your guy. Yeah. All right. Well. Uh, that about wraps it up. Thanks again, listeners, and um, we'll catch you uh, probably around Indian Wells, Miami. <laughs>